Continuing on today with our series on Old Testament characters. And going to continue just walking through the Bible there and see when the, how long we go on this. I don't think we're going to go straight through the Old Testament hitting on all the main characters, but uh, we'll probably go a few more weeks on this. I'm going to read my text here in just a few minutes so you can go ahead and be seated. Thank you for your worship. Thank you for uh, being here today. This past week, I had a little accident, and we had uh, people over at our house on the 4th of July. Anthony, uh, our son, was in town, and his, his girlfriend, and we had uh, interns over, and had a good time. We had eaten food. We had used two different crock pots to, to cook the food that we were having, and it was too hot to grill out, so I was like, man, I'm not grilling out. It's going to be 95 degrees, and forget, forget doing that. And so, because I'm such an awesome husband, I had washed the dishes, and uh, that was a joke. I really did wash the dishes, but uh, my wife may have another opinion on how awesome I am. But I, I had washed the dishes, and... There were too many dishes to fit in the sink, so we were putting the dishes on the towel on the counter next to the sink, and I had laid both of the crock pots there. I'd already washed them, and I was trying to get everything to stack up just right. It wasn't working. And I said to myself, as I decided to move the crock pots, I was like, man, you're going to break one of these. You need to Make sure you're not just using one hand to move things around. Ten seconds later, one crock pot, as I was moving it, it slipped as I was rearranging and it hit the other crock pot and fortunately only one of them broke instead of both of them. I first thought that maybe both of them had, had been broken, but it was just the one. And here's the deal, because I broke the crock pot, I was like, Mark, you're a moron, but that's okay. I forgive you. Now, if someone else had broken the crock pot, I probably would not have been quite as gracious and forgiving. I'd have wanted to know what they were thinking and why they weren't being more careful, but it was me, so, I mean, how bad could it be? I had to be taking all of the precautions. and Quick to forgive myself in this moment, but we're often not so quick to forgive others and to, uh, we're, we're just not as merciful and not as gracious when it comes to others. I heard a story, and this is a story of grace and mercy. A guy I know in St. Louis, great, he has a great family. Uh, his kids all serve God. His son, one of his sons is now the pastor of the church where we uh, attended for 22 years in St. Louis. And, but his oldest son did something not too smart one day as he backed the one vehicle into the brand new camper that they had just bought. Put a big dent in it. 
And when Buddy was telling this story, he said this, he said, I had to make a choice on to be quick to forgive or to make a big deal. And he said, I knew it was an accident. He wouldn't, of course, done it on purpose, and maybe he's not paying attention, and maybe he wasn't being as careful. But he said, I just went out, and I was like, man, are you okay? Everything good? It's just, it's an accident. It'll be all right. I'm not sure that I would react that same way. I'd probably have to give myself a good talking to and make sure I was calm as the thousands of dollars of vehicle and camper were damaged because of a moment of probably inattentiveness. I mentioned last week that there are a variety of, of views of God that people have, and one of those is that God is looking to punish But I would tell you today, God is not looking to punish us. He is looking to forgive us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That everything God has done from the garden until now is to redeem man and to bring us into relationship with Him. He's not looking to punish. He's looking to forgive. And He's looking to bring us into a relationship with Himself. Now to be clear... God does punish sin. To be clear, sin will be punished, but God, the Bible says, He is long-suffering. That He is not quick to judge, He is quick to forgive because He wants people to come into a relationship with Him. And God is ultimately looking for everyone to turn to Him in repentance. The text I'm getting ready to read to you, it is... Once again, it is that time of the judges. It's that time after going into the promised land. It's that time after Joshua has passed off the scene and Israel is now in this up and down roller coaster of serving God and then turning from Him and serving idols and God coming in and and causing their neighboring countries to take them captive and to punish them in essence for their sin. And they would repent and God would forgive and he would restore them out of captivity and then the next generation would come along and so it is this cycle the bible in fact says in judges that everybody did what was right in their own eyes there wasn't a leader and so they were following god and then turn from god and then follow god and turn from god it is one of those down times in israel's history that israel has once again sinned and God turned them over to the Philistines. The Philistines, a neighboring country of Goliath fame. Goliath is a Philistine. And we're going to see them over and over throughout the rest of the the Old Testament as Israel constantly has to battle with the Philistines. And God has raised up a deliverer for His people. He has raised them up this person to bring them out of captivity and to bring them out of the hand of the Philistines. But now, this deliverer is getting ready to die in his final act. The final act of his life is going to be to be used of God, but he's going to die in the process. And of course, you may have already guessed, this is the story of Samson. And I'm going to read three verses. These are the end of his life. Judges 16, 29 would say, Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars 
that held up the temple. This is the temple of the pagan god Dagon. He puts his hands on this temple and he pushes against them with both hands. And as he's pushing, he prays, verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and the people, so he, Samson, killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. Later, his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body. They took him back home and buried him between Zorah and Estel, where his father Manoah was buried. Samson had judged Israel for 20 years. This is his final act. It is his death. How did he get to this place of standing in a pagan temple in Philistine captivity, saying, God, just give me the strength. Let me do this one thing and let me die with my enemies. Samson's birth, it was a supernatural birth. His birth was announced by an angel, and when angels show up, there's always something supernatural about to happen. And Samson's birth, it was announced by an angel, and this angel said that Samson would take a Nazarite vow. He would be a Nazarite unto God. And this is primarily, a Nazarite is primarily someone who is marked by abstaining from certain actions. There's certain things Nazarites would not do. The book of Numbers chapter 6 spells out the Nazarite vow and what is expected of them. And let me just pause here and say this. That while these Nazarites were consecrated to God, it is the will of God that all believers would be consecrated to Him. That God calls all of those who are His people to be consecrated to Him. That there are certain things that we don't do and certain things we do. But there, are, there is a consecration and a level of commitment. Certain things we abstain from. Certain things we do. We pray, we fast, we read our Bible, we go to church, we, we are good biblical stewards, we share the gospel. Certain things we do and there are certain things we don't do. Immorality, we don't steal, we don't kill, we don't commit adultery. There's a variety of things, and I just named three from the Ten Commandments. So all believers are called to consecrate themselves to God. And and let me just further add this, it's not just come and get the new birth experience and then just go on your merry way. It is a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. It is a commitment to say, I'm going to serve Him, and that my my attitude and my actions and what I believe and what I do and what I say is going to be in alignment with His will and His Word. I'm going to follow Jesus. Ultimately, everybody wants to be saved, but not everybody wants to follow Jesus. But this Nazarite vow, it was a lifelong vow. It's not just a period of time. It is when you make the Nazarite vow that from that point until you die, you abstain from those certain things. And the angel of the Lord would tell Samson's mother that as long as he is in your womb, you can touch no dead thing. That you can't drink any wine. These are part of the typical Nazarite vow, but God took it a step further and said, this this person that's you're getting ready, this child you're getting ready to have, he's going to be separated unto me. He's going to be a Nazarite. But while he's in the womb, you've got to follow this as well. Because you can't even do what he can't do. 
And specifically, as part of his Nazarite vow, the angel of the Lord told Samson's mother that he cannot cut his hair, that for the duration of his life, no razor can pass over his, his head. This is a unique piece of the Nazarite vow. It's not everyone, but it is an outward sign of a dedication to God. It's an outward sign that he is committed, that he is separate. He's doing something different than everybody else. And Samson committed himself to following that portion of the vow that he wasn't going to let a razor pass over his head. He wasn't going to get a haircut. But most of the vow that Samson took, he broke. The Bible would say that if you are an Israelite and you are a child of God, as it were, you are part of the people of God that you're not to marry outside of the Jewish nation. Samson, he goes to the city of Timnath and there he finds a Philistine woman and he decides that of all the people all the ladies in, in the nation, this is the one he wants. And so he goes back and forth, and as he's going, he sees a lion. Samson's strong, supernaturally strong. It's not because he's a bodybuilder. It's not because he's a power lifter. His strength didn't come because of his physique. His strength came from the power of God. Sees a lion getting ready to attack him. So what does he do? He just reaches over, grabs the lion, tears him. The Bible says he tears him. That's, that's some strength right there. Leaves the lion, passes by a few days later, and in the carcass of the lion, bees had made a hive, and these bees were producing honey. And his vow is he can't touch anything dead, but what does he do? He sees the honey, and he goes, and he gets some honey out of the carcass of the lion, breaking his vow. He married a Philistine woman. He slew this lion. He ate the honey from a dead lion. He's getting ready now for his wedding. And the custom of the day was that people would create riddles. And so Samson puts forth a riddle for the people at the wedding feast. It's a riddle that nobody could get. Out of the hunter came forth meat. And he talks about the sweetness of the honey, but he doesn't tell him what it is. And so his wife, they're already married in this seven-day celebration. They get down to the end of the celebration, and her father and others say, you've got to get the answer to this riddle because we don't want to have to pay up if we can't do it. You've got to tell us what it is. So you go to Samson and... So his wife goes to him and says, oh, if you love me, you'll tell me. If you love me, you'll tell me what's going on here, if you really love me. And finally, Samson gets fed up and he tells her the answer to the riddle. And the next thing you know, she has told everybody else. And they come with time to give the answer to the riddle and they know it. And Samson says, you wouldn't have known that if you hadn't been plowing with my heifer." you like the King James English? He said, if you hadn't been messing with my wife, there's no way you would have gotten this riddle. And so he's mad, but he's going to pay up. And so what does he do? He goes and he kills 30 men of Ashkelon. And he takes their garments off of them because that's what he has to give is 30 new garments of clothing. 
He kills these 30 men. He takes their clothes. He take, goes back. He gets mad whenever his father-in-law, after he finally gets back, his father-in-law says, I didn't think you really wanted her. I didn't think you were coming back, so I gave her to somebody else. She's not your wife now. She's somebody else's wife. And so then he gets really mad. He goes out and he catches 300 foxes. He ties their tails together with a firebrand and he turns them loose in the the fields of the Philistines and everywhere they're going, that fire is just bouncing along behind them and it sets fire to all of their fields. And now the Philistines are, they're angry. They come to attack Samson and as he's getting there, he's standing there watching them come and he's getting ready to go into battle and he grabs the, do- the jawbone of a donkey that's laying there on the side near him and he picks up this jawbone of a donkey The Bible says that he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Supernatural strength and supernatural help. He goes down to the city of Gaza there to visit with a harlot. They try to lock him in and he just comes up to the gates of the the city, picks them up and just carries them off. God working through him with this supernatural strength because he had kept his vow. And then, the final demise of Samson is this, that he meets up with Delilah. Delilah, Philistine. Delilah, the one who can be bought. Delilah, the one who convinces Samson, just like the woman of Timnath, Oh, Samson, what is the secret of your strength? The Philistines, are willing, they're going to pay her money if she will tell them what the secret of his strength is. And so, he said, Samson, what is the secret of your strength? And he makes up some stories. First thing he does is that there are seven green vines that have never been dried. If you tie me with those, I'll be like any other man. He goes to sleep. She ties him up while he's sleeping. And then she wakes him up. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He wakes up. He breaks the the stuff. Drives the Philistines off. At this point, you would think he would be saying, there's something wrong here. But not Samson. Samson, if you love me, you'll tell. You just made up that story. Samson, if you really love me, you'll tell me. He says, if you tie me up with new ropes that have never been occupied, I'll be like any other man. He goes to sleep. She ties him up. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Wakes up, shakes himself, breaks the ropes, drives off the Philistines. Now, a normal person, I've got to be honest with you, a normal person would go, If I had told her the truth, I would be in trouble. Not Samson. He doesn't leave and she convinces him, oh, Samson, if you love me, tell me. He said, if you take and weave the seven locks of my hair into a weaver's beam or a web, I'll be like any other man. He goes to sleep. She does what he told her. 
Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and shakes himself and drives off the Philistines. She begins to pester him over and over. You're playing games with me, Samson. If you, you don't really love me, if you really loved me, you would tell me. And he tells her, I've never had a haircut. A razor has never passed on over my head, and if it does, I will be like any other man. And the Bible says that she knew that he had finally told her the truth. That the way he told her, there must have been something different about the way he told her that she knew it was the truth, and so he goes to sleep. She gets a barber to come in. She doesn't even do it herself. She gets someone to come in and cut his hair. And after it is done, she tells the Philistines, he's ready. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And the Bible says that he wakes up and he shakes himself and he does not know the Spirit of God has departed from him. He thinks it's going to be like any other time that God is still there with him. But when he goes out to battle, he's just like any other man. And the Philistines, they take him, they put out his eyes, they put him in captivity, they strap him to the, the grinding wheel, and they make him go around in circles like they would a donkey or a cow, as he's just walking around this mill grinding The weed are grinding the corn or grinding the grain. Samson lost a number of things. He lost his purpose and he lost his priority. Instead of doing God's work of delivering God's people, he set about to follow his own desires. He lost the symbol of his covenant with God. He had that outward sign for a long time, but he wasn't really following God. And, and then that last straw, when his hair is cut, lost the symbol of his covenant. And ultimately, he lost the Spirit of God. He would lose his vision as he is physically blinded as they put out his eyes. Can't imagine. This is Samson, the strong man, the judge of Israel, blind. He lost his freedom. I would tell you that sin will bind you. And sin will control your life. And when you turn from God and begin to do the things that God has called us not to do, it will cause you to lose your freedom. It will cause you to lose a whole lot. Some have said that sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will cost you more than you want to lose. And Samson lost his dignity, he lost his freedom, his vision, his priorities, his sign of his covenant. He's mocked and made fun of as little kids would come up and make fun of him. Kids that would never have dared to do this when he was still with the sign of his covenant. And ultimately, he would lose his life. And I, I have been raised knowing the story of Samson. The shame of a life that was wasted and a, a person that had supernatural strength from God and he ends up 
in a pagan temple, dying in this pagan temple, blind. But as I, w- I was putting together this message, I decided I can't stop there at his death, because that's really not the end of the story. The story doesn't stop there. See, Samson is mentioned one other place in the Bible. Only one. Many of the Old Testament characters are mentioned throughout the Old Testament, and they're mentioned numerous times in the New Testament, but not Samson. We have the the few chapters of his life, and then he's only mentioned one more time. It happens to be that he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, it is the hall of faith as it is named. It is the list of heroes of the Old Testament that that God had used and people that were used of God. And Samson is mentioned there. Hebrews 11.31, you can put it on the screen. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed. She wasn't destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies who talked about the story. And the writer would say this, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and all the prophets. That Samson is listed right here among all of the people of God, of these, these prophets of God and these kings of God and these priests of God. He's listed. He says, I, I don't have time to tell you all those stories, but these are people of faith. And the writer would go on and say, by faith these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. And what I would tell you is there are three or four of these things that could be used to describe Samson. He he shut the mouths of lions. In his weakness he was made strong and he put to battle and put to flight the armies of the enemy. What I would tell you is this, is that God's grace is greater than our sin. That God's grace is greater than the things of our past, and His grace is greater than all of the shame of our past and whatever we've done. His grace is greater. That God's grace is, will cover, it will cover our sin, and it will cover our shame, and it will cover our failures, it will cover our flaws, and it will take away our lostness. The sad ending of that story is not the end because the Spirit of God comes on Samson. He doesn't do it in his own power, and his own strength, but once again, even in his death, God in His grace gives him strength. And Paul, who would pen the epistle to the Romans, would say, where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. Grace, it is the unmerited favor of God. It is God doing for us what we do not deserve. Samson doesn't deserve to have God's strength come on him again. 
He broke his covenant. He had one thing he was supposed to do, and he breaks that. But Samson cries out to God and says, just one more time, let me feel your power. And the grace of God brings him strength. I would tell you that God's grace is greater than anything you've ever done. No matter how bad something in your life may have been, His grace is greater. No matter how much sin you've committed, His grace is greater. No matter how many times you may have started in a walk with God and turned away from that, His grace is greater. No matter how many years you've lived away from God, His grace is greater. Would you stand together with me? I would just tell you that just for a moment, let me just ask you to do this. Would you just lift your hands just for a moment? And would you thank God for His grace? And would you ask God to touch you right now? Would you ask God to let you feel His grace as it comes upon you and His forgiveness and His love and His mercy? God, we need You today. We need You today. We want the power of Your Spirit to touch us. We want the power of Your Spirit to bring forgiveness. We want the power of Your Spirit, Lord, to be at work in us. God, we need You today. God, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for who You are. We thank You for Your salvation. We thank You, Lord, that we can be in relationship with You. And Lord, there's not a person in this room who's done too much to go too far away from your grace. There's not a person in this room, Lord, that you aren't calling to salvation. There's not a person in this room that you don't want to call into relationship with you. God, we thank you today. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor, Jesus. We give you glory and honor. Romans 5.20, which I read to you, says where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. The Apostle Paul is the one who penned those immortal words. This is the man who would describe himself as the chief of sinners. He's the man who would say, out of all the sinners in the world, I'm the worst. I'm persecuting Christians. I'm putting them to death. I'm, I'm seeking them out to kill them because they're serving this Jesus. And he would say that I'm the chief of sinners, but God saved me. And on that road to Damascus, a bright light and a voice came from heaven knocked me to my knees and told me the truth and I found salvation and Paul would say if I'm the chief of sinners anybody can be saved that's why he could pen those words where sin does abound grace does much more abound I'm going to invite you just for a few minutes to gather around the altar here as a sign of faith and commitment to Jesus. I'm going to invite you just to come and lift your hands and just talk to the Lord for a moment.
won't you do that? Would you step out of your, your aisle, step out of the place where you're sitting or standing, and would you just come around the front just for a moment? We're not going to belabor this. We've got a baptism we're getting ready to do. We've got some other things to do today.